Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. For the first segment of today's show, we'll be talking about Crow's Stories, a new documentary from Brantford photographer Sean Kernan that offers a glimpse into the life, landscape, and culture of the Crow people, a Native American tribe concentrated in southern Montana. We'll talk about the background of this project, what Kernan saw and heard with his camera out in Crow country, and some challenges and benefits of being a documentary filmmaker based out of the greater New Haven area. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by Inner City News Editor Babs Rawls-Ivy for a review of Hidden Figures, a new movie based on a true story about three African-American women who worked at NASA in the late 50s and early 60s. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Sean Kernan. Sean is a widely exhibited photographer, writer, and teacher. He's the author of three monographs, including The Secret Books with Jorge Luis Borges and Among Trees with Anthony Doerr. His photographs have been published in the New York Times Magazine, the Smithsonian, New York Magazine, to name just a few. And most pertinent for this show, he's the director of two documentaries, Kampala Boxing Club and Crow Stories. Sean, thank you very very much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, you open up this documentary with a uh, an epigraph of sorts that says, when you first told someone about this project, they asked what you were looking to say about Crow country, about the Crow people, about the people and experiences that you had uh, out in Montana. And you said that you weren't looking to say anything, but rather you were looking to listen. So I wonder, as you uh, introduce this project to me and the listeners, I mean, tell us a bit about what what it is, how, how you came to tell this story. Could you start with uh, just simply, what is it that you heard in your making of Crow Stories? I wasn't particularly looking to hear anything. It was my way of saying that I had no clue what to do there, what I should have heard or might have heard or might have found. It was a way, it was a way of, photography and film was a way of making me be more present and more accountable to my own, to my own impressions. So that's, that's what I was doing out there. Maybe I was just trying to hide my ignorance, but I was, in a way, I was protected by my ignorance too, because I did not know um, what you're supposed to do. So I had to kind of figure it out based on what I already knew about time, about music, about light, about how things flow and how things come together. So that was... Uh, Maybe I was even being a little disingenuous when I said uh, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, looking to say anything. I wouldn't have known what to say anyway. Now, from what, what I understand, you were invited out to this part of the country. Right? You have a, a friend in the Crow Nation, or a fr- uh, some, some, uh, at least someone who uh, initiated you into this world. Or t- tell, tell me yeah, about how, yeah. you, how you came to this part of the country in the first place. Exactly. I have a very good friend who, uh, who's a, a uh, photographer for NGOs. He's the guy who got me to Africa in the first place, and I would I would never turn up really at any place, but maybe especially on an Indian reservation and say, "Hey guys, do you mind if I hang around and take some pictures?" But um, he knew somebody there, and he'd been invited, and he said, "I can bring a friend. Do you want to come out?" So I said, "Absolutely, I do." Um, that was that was the door that opened, and you have these experiences where a door opens in front of you. If you don't walk through it, you're a fool. So I walked through and then kept walking, kept going back again and again. That that seems to be a uh, a professional modus operandi of yours, for, based on the other work of yours that I've seen and and watched and and read about. And that you really challenge yourself to expose yourself to environments that you have really no familiarity with, kind of throwing yourself headfirst into um, into Northern Ireland, into Kampala, Uganda, into a boxing gym, into places where. Um, you don't necessarily have a plan to start as to a particular story you're looking to tell, but rather let the environment in front of you, the people in front of you, kind of play out and dictate the story to you. And I wonder if, I mean, I wonder if that is, from what you understand, a, a, a common way of making documentaries. Do you think the best documentary filmmakers kind of go out and let the story be told to them? And how does, I mean, how does that work for you with something like Crow Stories? I imagine there's, it, it requires a lot of patience. Uh, and a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I, I love to quote a poet by the name of Charles Wright. And somebody once asked him, "How do you, how do you find the things that you're going to write about? How do you come to them so you can start work?" And he said, "I, you have it wrong." He said, "I write to find out what I have to say." And that's more or less. I mean, that, hearing that was like a, hearing a key going into a lock. And that's more or less how I've worked. So the things that have really taken me someplace and changed me were 
like entries into another universe, the uh, oh prisons in the South or Tibetan monasteries or the Kampala Boxing Club or something like that. So I, it, it takes me out of my uh, white bread, middle class rooted existence here and throws me throws me out of my own resources. And you know how it is when you go to a, a strange foreign place, you wake up, you're in a different state of alertness and awakeness. It's like, it's like taking some kind of a drug or something. I think that's probably one of my chief attractions to photography way back when and now, uh, now video. You know, I, that kind of general attitude towards assignments, I imagine predisposes you towards recognizing the, you know, the common humanity of just about any subject that you experience, right? Ultimately, these are fellow people, fellow Americans, fellow human beings that you're documenting, and there are similarities in, you know, the way that we form families, the way that we enjoy life, the way that we suffer, that we struggle, that we love, but also, I imagine, you are attuned to very specific cultural and historical differences in people. I mean, going out to you know, there is a, a whole world of, uh, you know, thousands upon thousands of years that go into creating a culture that you are all of a sudden exposed to at a very surface level, but also have to try to understand how does this kind of deep history, this personal and communal connection to a, a background that you're not a part of, how is that manifesting itself in the world in front of you? And I wonder with, with Crow Stories, where, I mean, one of the things that I you know, asking about not telling a story, but hearing one of the things that I heard from the people speaking in Crow Stories is the importance of one balancing one's life between having one foot in Native American tradition in the Native American world and having one foot in the kind of Western, quote unquote, civilized white man's world, having that and pulling the best from both. Yeah. Um, but then also ha- maintaining a very kind of personal and intimate connection to the history of one's people and making sure no matter what, not not to lose that. And I, I wonder how, uh, you know, as you immersed yourself in the Crow stories, uh, what were some of the, the kind of key differences that you really had to acclimate yourself to in understanding this culture? Well, there was, there was, I mean, when, when you talk, when anybody talks about balance, you kind of assume that people get balanced and hang out in that. And like most of us, the crows and me, hit balance as we slide from one side to the other and we hit balance for a few seconds and then go over to the other side and then immediately feel, feel the tug back. Um, so for example, in the, in the matter of language, when, uh, the, the older generation feels it's enormously important to, uh, to maintain the language. And yet, you know, the teenagers want to get a cell phone and want to get online and, and do not want to go take crow lessons particularly. So it's uh, how, how that, that is a point that, for example, is uh, rebalancing now. A point that needs no rebalancing is their feeling for horses. And I think that is touched on in the film. But in the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it was the 1920s, uh, the United States government, uh, the crows are totally identified with their horses. And the United States government said, no more horses. And they rounded them up and they slaughtered them. And why they would have done this, except to destroy a culture, which is really what they were working pretty hard on doing, um, I can't imagine. But but cr- horses came back, horses breed, and people keep horses. And so as you drive around the reservation now, whereas in, in, uh, in Brantford you might look and see dogs in the yard, in Crow Country you see horses in the yard. Yeah, I'm glad that you... Uh that you singled out horses at the as one of the kind of first points of response for this movie and, and this culture because that jumped out as me at me as well and I'm interested in talking about how you as a photographer set out to to document the the various aspects of the culture and landscape um, and including the horses but I mean thinking about the the current uh, kind of political climate in which we find ourselves in right now, where the nation's attention is more so than in a long time, very focused on the intersection of Native American rights uh, and environmental rights and the relationship of those two to a kind of progressive left political resistance to a kind of monolithic corporate destructive culture. And the example I'm referring to, of course, is the Standing Rock uh, tribes protests of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I wonder, and clearly this is a few states west and a different tribe. We're not talking about the same group of people as we see on kind of the news every day protesting the potential destruction of uh, their access to clean and safe water. 
But I wonder, as you watch and think about crow stories now, in the context of this very kind of heightened American awareness of Native American rights and environmental rights through Standing Rock, uh, how does how does that political context inform your own uh, reflections on your experience there and your watchings of this movie? Does it does it change at all thinking about uh, how just how in the kind of culture's eye this particular part of the country is right now? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely for sure. I know that. A number of crows went out to Standing Rock, as a lot of people from tribes all over the place uh, did. Um, that was after I more or less wrapped up. Not that I am wrapped up. I'd love to go back and do more. Um, but it, seemed, it seems to me my experience has been to stay in the particular, or that's, that's the thing that really intrigues me. Um, so I didn't encounter that, so that kind of uh, Native American larger picture when I was there. In fact, um, what I became aware of is that the, diff- the different tribes are not, are not totally unified in that way. There, there's, there, there were historical great divisions like with the, the Northern Cheyenne right next door and, and, and the Lakota were mortal enemies back in the day. So um, actually it's, what's interesting is that I encountered this guy, Kevin Dust, who performs in the Wild West show at Euro Disney. And he's a crow and he's been doing that for 21 years and he's playing Chief Sitting Bull, who was, who was a Lakota. And uh, the, he said, it's just such an irony. Here I am, a, a crow playing a Sioux. He said, I'm the only... I'm the only person I know who gets paid to be an Indian, and uh, and he gets paid to be sitting bull. It's just so so the particularity of things of of uh, for example, environmentally, there's a um, there's a crow uh, a coal mine right near right near the the reservation, right on the reservation. They're leasing reservation lands, a very big coal mine. Um, there are some environmental things that always happen when you, when you get a great big coal mine going. And on the other hand, a lot of people work there. A lot of crows work there. So, so you experience all the tensions that we all, that we all feel there. And that was, that was kind of a surprise to me. I think what had kind of sparked that connection for me was the way that you were talking about the, um, the critical importance of the horse, not just to the, day-to-day life of the crow. Uh, not, these aren't just modes of transportation or pets, but they have incredible kind of spiritual and cultural importance to the entire community. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you brought up uh, Kevin Dust because I want to talk about the structure of the movie a little bit. You, This is not a, um, a movie that has a single narrative thread that takes you from beginning to middle to end, but rather a collection of individual stories that maybe build up to something cohesive. I'm interested in hearing what you got from the the kind of sum of all of these different characters and people that you spoke with. But if Kevin Dust is maybe one of the most fascinating situations that you uh, display in the movie, a, a crow man who has been living in Paris, working at Euro Disney for decades, uh, could you tell me and the listeners a bit about some of the other kind of individual stories that you tell in this movie? Who are some of the, when you think about the people that you interviewed and kind of featured in this movie, who who jumps out to you and, and why did they make it into the movie? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you, you used the word, the structure of this movie, and that's dignifying it. That certainly was not something that existed in the beginning. Um, I, like any artistic or creative project, it started to accumulate as it went, and, and very often my plans that I'd made of things that I wanted to get, sequences I wanted to be sure to film, and I would go out to get them, and none of them would happen. Something different would happen every time. So we were going to film a, a, um, a buffalo hunt, and we spent three days tracking the guy who had the key to the buffalo pasture because the crow has a, has, a, has a herd up in the mountains. Couldn't find him, and so that got disappointed. And, uh, but the next time I landed, somebody said, come on, we're going to go hunt a buffalo. So we went right out and did it. Um, I was looking to track down Henry Realbird, who let me use several of his recordings. Henry is a um, crow poet laureate our Montana poet laureate and poet crow. Um, and we were, I was not able to connect with him until the very last day and we couldn't film, but 
somebody sent me off looking for this guy, Chris Parrish, Superman, who is a Crow rapper. And in some ways, he was just the, the perfect guy that I found that I didn't know that I needed as badly as I did. But he was contemporary. He was talking about singing about some of the difficulties of that the tribe faces uh, in this in this extraordinary way, so much so much better than opinion. So so Chris was uh, Chris was a really wonderful person to talk to. But it uh, sounds like happy accidents almost led you from encounter to encounter. I imagine there were some people that you set out to interview. You knew you wanted to talk to them, but yeah. um, I mean that's. I, from what I understand from speaking with documentarians, that sometimes that is that is the way that the story presents itself to you. It's not necessarily what you know going in, but rather who you stumble upon and kind of what you stumble upon and what you see while you're waiting uh, as um, as anything else. And oh, please, yeah, no, I've that, that's that's I've, I worked on years ago. I had an idea for what I thought would be maybe a good picture story, and an editor said, "No, that's a film," and I said, "I don't know how to make a film," but. Long story short, we did. Connect, I connected with the filmmaker. We did make it, and it became a CBS uh, movie of the week. And it was an extraordinary experience with tremendous amounts of research. People flying around and finding this kind of person, that kind of person, in this kind of place. Uh, so that's that's the way you should do these things, uh, particularly with people who sort of want to pay back. This was kind of a heart project, and so. Um, I couldn't do that. And whenever I had my plans, the first thing I had to learn to do was, was drop them. And finally, I, I, I never got comfortable with it, but discomfort is a big part of uh, how things work. So, so that, was, that was the working method, was go out, see what happens, and uh, hope that something would. And I, but I think that when you do work off of an assemblage of uh, various different either happy accidents or just a wide swath of people who live in the community, you inevitably comment upon the diversity of the community that you are um, that you are portraying, and that you interview someone like Daniel Ramira, who is <laughs> this this wonderfully sensitive and kind of heartbroken artist who is painting. I think I believe like a rep- a relatively representational picture of a horse on the side of a building, and then you have someone uh, like Manfred Walks who is continuing the Sun Dance or a very traditional crow dance that he has inherited from generations of of people in in his family and in his community. Uh, you have the guy working at Euro Disney. You have uh, someone singing. You have dancing. You have the sweat lodge. You you see all of the the different paths that people in this community take in both expressing their own interests, their own perspectives on the worlds, but also in connecting with the community of which they're a part. Yeah. Um, did you did you feel that diversity in kind of paths taken in the people that you spoke to, as opposed to one monolithic kind of crow way of life? Yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I didn't know what to expect in a way. I thought there'd be diversity. And then in the middle of it, it's kind of like the the, uh, the fog of filming. You know, you, you, I, I never had a great sense overall. It was like, you know those things they used to have, <clears throat> excuse me, those things they contest that radio stations ran where you could run into a grocery store and you had 10 minutes and you'd grab anything you wanted and then... You had to come out and figure out what to do with uh, frozen chicken, Cool Whip, great soda, and uh, Drano. You know how to how are you going to make dinner out of these things? And that was kind of the position that I was in, which was which was perfect. I mean, it, you you shouldn't know what you're doing. Uh, if I had known how to make films, I probably wouldn't have made this film. And I have a I was served very well by my my film guru, a friend of mine named DeWitt Sage, who at some point looked at, and he, he's won Academy Awards and Peabody's, and he really knows how to do it. And he looked at this and he, and he said, you know, you, you're doing something really different and really unusual here, and it's working, so do that. I'm not going to tell you to change, to change what you do. Uh, leave in your, the disjointedness. Leave in the anxiety, because that's, it's about your experience of the place. I mean, I, I can't represent the Crow community. Couldn't possibly. I can represent my own experience and my own interest and hope that they coincide and interesting to somebody other than me. But you know what, even though we're, we're talking about the maybe somewhat intentionally and delightfully disjointed nature of the narrative, we're also, I mean, we 
are selling short or haven't brought up at all your incredible kind of artistic and professional experienced photographic eye. I mean, you are someone who has been taking photographs and thinking about the composition of images for decades. And so maybe what uh, kind of improvisation is required in the narrative is completely belied by the incredible structure and discipline and focus of the images that you are ultimately presenting to the audience. And so I wonder if, as we transition from talking about some of the people you were documenting, um, we talk about some of the images on display in this movie. You alternate between very intimate close-ups of just about everyone you interview, including a breathtaking sequence at the end where we get a montage of almost all of the close-ups of everyone that we spoke with, of course, in the movie, with the equally breathtaking landscapes. I mean, the just miles upon miles of empty, sometimes cold, sometimes barren, unforgiving space, but always... Um, impressive and almost explosive. Whenever there's a sunset or a sunrise, it kind of feels like the end or the beginning of the world. But I wonder, tell me a bit about how you photographed this movie and, again, that balance between the close-ups of the people and the very long, wide shots of the landscape. Well, that's that's uh, a lot of people will, a lot of photographers who try to make films make beautiful, long still shots that are quite lovely, but that don't, that don't move. I did an interview years ago with a guy named Gordon Willis, who was a cameraman. He shot the Godfather. He shot a lot of Woody Allen movies and so forth. And he said, when people say to me, Gordon, that's a beautiful shot. I know I've failed. So I was very, very leery and very aware that I didn't want to do that. Interestingly enough, I did shoot quite a number of stills while I was there, but they weren't very good. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't what I what I would have want to come away from with if I was just doing stills. They didn't really add up at all. And somehow that sensibility served the film, but it also then then time enters into it. How long do you hold something? How long do you stay away from something? How long do you move into someone? And then how do you how do you pull back again? And how do you how do you mix these up? And again, it was just having a having excuse me having having like a a bucket it was like a bucket of fish and i'm trying to make a terrarium out of this so so with these things spread out there there are things that are not in there because they're just too damn lovely and that's all they are you know but you know what i think that i would push back a little bit against the reading of of willis's quote that's a great uh, that's a fascinating quote but i think that uh, maybe you and he are trying to accomplish slightly different things in your photography and that he yeah. working within the context of narrative film never wants the beauty of the image to distract from the story being told, but always wants the image to comment upon and, and kind of build up the characters in the scene. I think that you are working in a similar way and that you always, the images always have to serve the larger function of the movie. What is, what is, what do these images help tell us about the crow people that you're documenting and the, the environment in which they live? But I I do think that part of uh, what is important about these landscapes and understanding the people is just the the breathtaking amount of the space, the the openness yeah. of it, the kind of endlessness of it. Because if one of the things that I heard in this movie was the importance of maintaining a connection to the land mm-hmm. uh, for the crow people, never I forget which character it says, but he said my my dad told me never ever sell my land. This is the one thing in the world that you have. And look at the decimation of Native American populations around you. And it always comes back to whether or not you gave up on the land. Yeah. You use these stunning pictures of the land to tell that part of the story uh, of the crow. Well, this they're, they're on their ancestral lands, which is kind of unusual for, for a tribe. They, they've always been there. And um, it, the land is a character. Also, the wind is a character. Also, train whistles, coal trains going through in the distance are, are characters, too. So it's uh, I, I, every once in a while I would get caught up in a story or something like that, but I'd always try to go back to something that had one of these things in it that is just a pervasive, an atmosphere that is very palpable. It's, re- it's, 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 a, it's a player. And you know, wind and train whistles, they can only play out over time, right? Maybe yeah. that's, that is something that a document, like a, a still documentary photograph cannot communicate. I'm thinking of the opening shot of, of the movie where you have this very high kind of horizon point in this deep black land and then the sun emerging and we get the epigraph and then all of a sudden we have a car driving up uh, out of the frame into the middle of it and it's like an exclamation point for the landscape, for the, for the quote. Uh, it's happening over the course of time, but it's also, it's kind of moving us into the story. And it's something that uh, 
And the, the same with the wind. Every time we see an empty land, we never feel that it's completely vacant because there's always this, whether it's like a, a spiritual sound or there's some kind of restless activity that is always present in the landscape that you're documenting. Now, l- let, me, let me tell you how that truck shot came about because this is, this is an example of the way I worked or didn't work. So I was out on the edge of town and, and I set up my camera. I thought there's something here and I turned it on and it was set for another shot, and it was so it was kind of pointing down, and it was significantly underexposed. And I thought, "Whoa, that's really beautiful!" Just black at the bottom, and then and then these broken clouds and sunshine up at the top. So I thought, "Well, I'm just going to shoot some of that. I don't know what I'll do with it." And suddenly, a car drives into the shot. It wasn't a very interesting car, but I thought maybe another one will come along. And in Montana, you never know. It could be two or three days before another one comes along. But about half an hour later, sitting there and getting bored, you have to get bored to some extent to make good work, I think. So I'm sitting there getting bored, saying, God, maybe I should give up on this or the light's going to change or something. Suddenly I hear in the distance the whine of tires. I say, okay, I'm ready. And I turned it on and I just was stunned by that. I was stunned by that. And, and it just, there was so little intention to that. It was just allowing something to happen more than anything and, and working that way. And, and instead, you know, if we were, if it was a truck commercial, we would have 12 trucks all polished and, and guys with walkie talkies queuing the trucks and they're going by. But, you know, God gave me this, this gift. You know, I, I so love how you bring up the importance of boredom in addition to the kind of professional and trained eye. And I was thinking about, um, any connection, any desperate connection I could make between this work and the writing of Jorge Luis Borges, because I'm, he has long been a favorite author of mine. And to know that you published a book with him, I guess posthumously for him, but, but, uh, but <laughs> he was human, unaware humously of it. for yeah, you. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I so admire about, um, Borges is the way that when he creates entire worlds out of nothing but language, I yes. mean, even his, his footnotes are often complete, uh, um, completely fab- fabrications that have the feel of plausibility yeah. because of the rigor with which that they're displayed. But th- it's all coming from this very intertextual world of Borges's brain. But also in a story like Funes the Memorius, where you have a character who's fallen off a horse and is kind of condemned to lie in bed and relive every single memory of his life. And this is someone who has like the perfect combination of boredom and creativity. Yeah. He can't escape the boredom of lying in bed for the rest of his life, but he's also constantly bombarded with yeah, images yeah. that are just so dense with meaning. Um, and he, is, is, was that a plausible Borges connection? To, That's, <laughs> to the, that, that, well, what, are there Borges connections here? What, what I love, Borges did this wonderful thing. I mean, I got to live in his world for a while, which was, uh, I, 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 I like to say that I... The several of his, several of my photographs are now in, on a Penguin edition um, of his work. So I, I like to think that I snuck into uh, world literature through the servants' entrance. Um, but I mean, he used to do things like he would write a, a book review of a book that didn't exist just to get the idea across. Because he said, "Who wants to write a long book? You don't have to. Just write a little review of a book." Um, and and these these little vignettes, these small things that suddenly expand into uh, something larger, something I pray for, I hope for. I I, uh, I light candles <laughs> whenever I go out to shoot. But uh, yeah, Bor has Bor has, has is in me, is in me. Can you tell me a little bit about um, who you th- who you who you want to see this movie? I mean, making a movie is not just about. Uh, your own kind of personal satisfaction or creative stimulation, but it's also, this is something made for sharing with other people, usually not for a lot of money, but <laughs> hopefully you can make back whatever it costs to make. But um, as you reflect on Crow stories, I know as, as we near the end of the interview, we're going to talk about how this is playing at best video uh, in the upcoming week, but uh, both who, who do you imagine seeing this story and also what is it that you want to kind of communicate to these folks about the, the crow, the crow stories. Uh, well, I still have nothing to say about them, even at the end of all this. Uh, but I'd like, I guess I would like it to be seen by anybody who's curious, anybody who can slow down, anybody who can set aside what they think they know about something. And, uh, you know, 
people here have no experience of of that. Very, very few people have any any experience such as I've had. So I want to I want to give that away. I'd like to give that to other people. But it it makes the demand that that you slow down. It's not a fast movie. It's actually very you know Chantal Ackerman's work. So she was very influential in my thinking, if not in my editing. But to leave something up for a minute or two minutes where nothing happens but the viewer changes, your attention changes. So so that's that's one of the reasons I've I know that we're supposed to have short attention spans throughout the world now, but this this thing has been online for a while in one version or another, and people watch the whole thing. I'm just stunned. So, uh, so I think if you sur- if people surrender to it, they'll have something like my experience, and I, I had to allow myself to have it and just shut up and see what was there. And then, if you do that faithfully, then other people can get some part of it or, or all of it, something like that. And um, not nothing concrete, no message, no. There's no exceptional nobility. There's no exceptional uh, whatever the opposite of nobility. Is. But they, like with Ackerman's work, I mean, watching this made me think about just the rituals that we all participate in of day-to-day life, how we all go through, you know, very specific actions every day. And sometimes we are so, we are often so close to them that we don't appreciate the kind of larger significance of them or what has helped kind of bring us to this particular spot, acting this particular way. And watching it repeated, both in the continuity and the diversity in the Crow people, you appreciate just what it means to be a crow all of the different kind of strands historical and cultural strands that are kind of and kind of rivers that are flowing into this one spot where you have i mean that's what i so loved about the the month the close-up montage at the end where you intercut the photos of people who you spoke with in the course of the movie with photos of their ancestors often in a similar kind of three-quarter profile and it really establishes a connection between uh what these people love what they're trying to recreate what they feel like they've lost and they're mm-hmm. trying to live up to and move away from um but it's it's something that uh, i i thought about how it affected my own life and not just uh the the lives that i was watching on screen mm. the, the last question i want to throw your way and we'll give you only about 30 seconds to answer this is um i talk with a lot of filmmakers from the new haven area um on, on the show and i always like to ask them about the challenges and benefits of being a New Haven area filmmaker. I mean, obviously we are a smaller city in between New York and Boston, and there are certain kind of benefits to working in a smaller environment, a very culturally rich environment. But as someone who has been working in photography and now documentary film for a while now, uh, what, are, what are the pros and cons for being based out of the greater New Haven area for you? You know, I, I, I don't even think of myself as a filmmaker. I, 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 um, it's it's or a photographer. I'm 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 awake, you know, and so uh, there, I mean, there's tremendous cultural support in New Haven for anything. I never want to live far from a university, and, and preferably Yale. I never want to live far from the ocean, too. So we have both of those things here, um, and and any given afternoon, there are there are incredible lectures around town. There are incredible communities around town that have nothing to do with the university. But that it's it's like this great mushroom bed of things uh, things growing, and without a lot of pressure to be wonderful, you know, we're not in L.A., we're not in New York, where where when people say how are you doing, the good answer is busy, busy, busy. You know, that's the correct answer. Um, it's it's a contemplative community in a way. It's a, it's a monastic community, and I don't just mean the university. The whole thing is wonderful. The whole town is so rich. Well, helping to contribute to our contemplative monastic community is Sean Kernan. A, even if he just identifies as alert, I'm going to call him a documentary filmmaker and photographer based out of Branford. Uh, Sean, where can people find out more about your work and where can they see Crow Stories in the next week? They can go to seankernan.com. They can go to crow-stories.net where the screening at Best Video is listed, and we have other screenings that are coming up, one in Boston, one in France. Kevin Dust is going to have a screening at a place that he works. So um, so we will be posting stuff there. And, and Well, we'll certainly link to those uh, sites on our own, the radio show page for this, uh, for this interview. So, Sean, thank you very much for coming in and talking about Crow Stories, and we'll see you at Best Video on, uh, I believe it's Monday, January 30th at 7 p.m. Great. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Coming up next, a review of the new movie Hidden Figures. But first, let's hear a little bit from Ellison Jackson. 
To Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I am now joined by Inner City News Editor, host of WNHH's Love Babs, Love Talk, Babs Rawls Ivy. Thank you for being on the show again, Babs. Oh, you know what, Tom? It's a Breen, pleasure to have you. you. Call, I come. Oh, jeez. What an honor. I'm blush I'm blushing, radio <laughs> listeners. Um, although maybe video watchers too. Who knows if we're being streaming anywhere right now, but we may. Um, so hidden figures. Uh, a new movie from director Theodore Melfi tells the interweaving stories of three African-American women who were friends and colleagues at NASA in the late 50s and early 60s, working as computers or calculators of complex mathematical problems that helped ensure that every aspect of NASA space missions, from the construction of the rockets to their planned trajectory to their return to Earth, were accurate, safe, and successful. Um, Although the movie's plot finds its anchor in the story of Katherine Johnson, played by Taraji P. Henson, who becomes the lone African-American woman working on the special space task group, the movie dedicates plenty of time to the stories of two of her close friends, Dorothy Vaughn, a computer programmer played by Octavia Spencer, and Mary Jackson, an engineer played by Janelle Monet. Um, one of the things that really jumped out at me uh, was a Facebook post that you put up soon after you saw Hidden Figures, uh, commenting on how this was a perfect display of all of the microaggressions that black women have to face on a daily basis and all of the microaggressions that white people are often completely oblivious to um, on a daily basis. And the, the deep, the, the hurt and the sensitivity required just to survive, let alone thrive that, uh, that people have to, kind of gird themselves with in order to overcome these microaggressions. So I wonder if, as we get into the conversation about this movie, if you could start by telling me about why that was one of your first reactions to Hidden Figures, to post something about uh, the microaggressions you saw. What, what were those there, and, and how, did they, how did they hit you? I mean, it, it was so obvious to me, and it was one of the things that sort of struck me immediately. Uh, you know, these are collegially trained women, you know, they're not women that they just pulled off the street and sort of said, okay, just go, whatever. These are women who have worked their way through somebody's college and university, right? And then they get these jobs, and then these people are talking to them as if somehow or other they're not collegially trained and have not earned some respect by calling black women, married black women by their first names, while they have to address everybody around them from the secretary on as Mr. or Mrs. whatever it is, right? So that was the first one to be uh, spoken to in a way when the conversation ends to to say, now you just run along now. You're talking to grown women, grown collegially trained scientists <laughs> and saying to them, dismissing them with you just run along. And it, this movie has plenty of representations of the more conspicuous type of racism of the Jim Crow era that I think a lot of people will find uh, familiar from their understanding of history and that you have uh, whites only and coloreds only water fountains. We have whites only and coloreds only bathrooms. We have people barred from going to certain areas of the library or sitting in the back of the bus. But it is, I mean, this movie is so um, alert to all of the different kind of smaller, more insidious things that happen on a near constant basis to yes. hu to humiliate and also to impose a certain kind of threat. I mean, when you're spoken to as a child and demanded um, that you are spoken to as an adult, there is, it's not just a power relationship. It is like a dominating, I am, you know, you have to look up to me and you have to act a certain way towards me. And I think that this movie is so much more, I mean, it is a, a feel good story about worthy characters overcoming like unjust obstacles to, to succeed professionally and personally. But it's so much more than that because it is so aware to to those the the the, the details that go into living in a racist and misogynistic mm -hmm. society. 
Well, I mean, I you know, take for instance um, the Taraji character who has had had to run back and forth to the bathroom, and 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 in that mo- in those moments, she is acutely aware of her blackness at every point of the way. There's no let me just sneak into the white bathroom. We know she knew that that can't ever happen. Like the repercussions of that could be really, really serious. So that can't ever happen. So she runs a quarter of a mile to go to a bathroom. But but the other part of that is the folks in the room, the white men in the room and the white woman, it never occurs to them that this is her reality. Like they never sort of stretch beyond their own sort of, well, I, I don't have that problem, so therefore I don't even see that that's a problem. You know, it's a kind of interesting needle that this movie has to thread is that uh, that that running to the bathroom sequence is kind of played as a bit in the movie. It happens a bunch of times. Yes. And honestly, it, it's yes. kind of played for laughs a few times. And yeah. the way we get the the kind of exuberant score, we see Taraji B. Henson looking from left, right, and all of a sudden she has to yeah. go to the bathroom. So we know she has to run a quarter of a mile just to relieve herself. And it's it's played as a bit until it isn't until it's until not it until it's not funny. Right. it's never really funny but you know her you know someone's running to have to go to the bathroom that's like goes back to the very beginning of slapstick style humor in the cinema but all of a sudden i mean the sh- maybe the centerpiece of this movie is when she explains to all of the white men standing around her why this is not funny and why and this isn't inconsequential because he sticks her out in a very sort of as if somehow or other, he's already in his mind thinking, see, this is why we don't have black people here, because they slack on their jobs. See, I bet you that was the thinking in his mind, like, because he said it. Why isn't she ever here? You know, it never occurred to him that she had a different sort of sort of circumstances in which to operate under. And that condescension is doubled because she's not just black, she's a woman. Yes. And this is a very male <laughs> terrain, right? Yes. I think one of the great kind of subtle visual elements that this movie employs is how everyone in the space task group, I think that's the name, everyone is wearing the exact same clothing, right? You have nothing but white guys, <laughs> clean cut, white collared shirts and black ties. Yeah. The two people wearing something colorful are the two women in the room. Yeah. You have a white woman wearing yeah. a, uh, kind and their of dresses, a pinkish though. red. Yeah, their dresses, they have to wear heels, right? Yes. Pearls are a very yes. important part of the story. <laughs> but the only people dressed in color are, are women. And of course, there's a power dynamic between the two women in the room because of racial tension. But... Um, I thought that this. I thought this movie did. A, I mean, every time we were emerged in that immersed in that room of just, it was like a dystopia of where every single bureaucratic white dude looks exactly the same, and then yeah. we have this one bit of color in the room, and it's kind of her yeah. vis- visual resistance <laughs> to those ties and collars. Um, but one thing I so loved about this movie is how it. Yeah, it's anchored on Katherine Johnson's story. But this is really the story of three women, and yes. Octavia um, Spencer and Janelle Monae's characters. They get just as much attention as Taraji B. Henson. I feel like I was I was never disappointed based on which character I was following at any time. It was never like, oh, we left this story and I can't wait to get back to it. Yeah. It was always these two. They they support our understanding. Like the, there are parallels between the stories. They're all always trying to overcome bits of um, again humiliation and injustice. But they're also their key differences in their personalities. They're they're spunky. They're sly. They're trying to accomplish different things. They're all professionally determined, but. I really loved how this movie had kind of three centers and it let those centers kind of reinforce one another while also showing that these are three different women. They don't mm-hmm. want the exact same thing. What they want is to be treated, you know, equitably and kindly and fairly and respectfully for their work. But they also, they're just three different people. And I loved how we got to know three different people over the course of this movie. I like, I think I'll tell you this, my favorite, one of my favorite things about this movie was the love stories because you never see um, black love uh, without contention. You know, it's always some, I mean, you just really don't see black love stories anyway, but if you happen upon one, um, it's always contentious and stereotypical. But these were lovely little stories, the courtship, right? There was a, there was a real courtship that we saw unfold uh, and he was so respectful. And then you saw um, the Jonelle, Jonay um, character and her husband and, you know, in those early moments, you were like, he was very sort of like, you know, not, not, you almost thought he wasn't going to be supportive, you know, but then he turned around and was highly supportive of her and even pushing her to sort of, you know, what, go dream, go do your dream or whatever. And, 
And and so I just thought the love stories in this and the portrayal of black men as supporters of black women, uh, which is rare in films, um, is was really sort of special to me. And yet there is a bit of tension in the Taraji B. Henson and Marshala Ali relationship and that he is this Colonel Jim Johnson. He's wooing her over you know, at a barbecue in a number of different locations. But he also almost it's like embedded in his very understand like his very language is that he's surprised that a woman is entrusted with so much responsibility at NASA. Right. And there and it's he treats her very respectfully. But there's always that hurdle. I mean, it's when we talk about systemic racism and systemic misogyny that is present to a little bit, at least at the beginning. It's a hurdle that they have to overcome in their mm-hmm. relationship because uh, really these women constantly have to prove themselves to other people, even when those other people are friends, even when they're <laughs> wooing them. It's always, it's always the burden is always on these women to show this is why I'm worthy of both my job and taking out books from yeah. this area. Of but that's the, you know what? That's the weight that black women carry still. I mean, we still carry it. It's not unique to that era. It actually has just sort of followed us till now. So, No, I was talking with uh, this student that I I tutor in New Haven Reads yesterday who went on a field trip to see Hidden Figures. And I'd love to talk about, talk with you about just the impact of this movie on the New Haven community, but also like just what it's like for young women of color to go to a movie to watch women of color succeed. But I asked her what her favorite moment of the movie was. And she said it was the moment when Kevin Costner's character picks up the hammer and knocks down the colored bathroom uh, sequence. And I've heard other kind of you know, snobby film critics describe that scene as the moment when Kevin Costner realizes that racism exists. It's like, oh no, oh my God, people are being mistreated. Let me get a hammer and knock knock this down. But I, I found it, but I found it both. It was both an incredibly cathartic moment, but it was also just this only underscores how kind of silly this char- this you know this character is because how is he only now realizing that this is a problem? But how did how did that big kind of cathartic moment of racism no more at nasa play for you i mean i you know what i just i knew what it was right because i'm like it it didn't matter to him because it wasn't his problem but he had a bigger issue and this interfered with the bigger issue if it didn't interfere with the bigger issue he could care less right that colored bathroom has been there forever (laughs) but because he had an issue that needed resolution and he needed her to be a part of that resolution. You know, then he was like, let me fix, let me just, hand. see, that's some white man privilege right there, right? Because none of those women could have done that. Not even white women could have done that. You know, they couldn't have. So that's just white privilege showing up in the middle of the movie to remind us that there's white privilege. And we see that with the incredibly benevolent and handsome John Glenn character too, right? He is this yes. kind of heroic figure who... Um, he doesn't deign to, I mean, I don't want to say that he is condescending in any way, but he is unique in that he actually shakes the hands of these black women and he recognizes them uh, as in, you know, providing important contributions to NASA's mission. But he's also, I mean, in that very display of just camaraderie and affection is his white privilege, right? Because he is able to cross that boundary without any consequences mm-hmm. um, for those women there are a lot, there are serious consequences for those types of transgressions. But I want we're running low on time, and I want to make sure to ask you about how a few weeks ago, when Lucy and I saw uh, Mayor Harp introducing uh, an event encouraging um, young women of color to go to pursue STEM, like science, technology, engineering, math, and it was up in the Quinnipiac Meadows area. And she said she referenced seeing hidden figures as a you know, something that was kind of part of this curriculum of like understanding how to go into, it was like a a motivation. And I thought, how wonderful that like, I can't imagine, I can't remember the last time I heard a public official reference a movie in like (laughs) encouraging people to go out and pursue science. But do you see this movie having like a positive actual impact? I mean, it already is, right? I mean, it already is. Um, From the fact that it, the title alone, the title alone is inspiring, hidden. This is, this is not some, made up story. This is an actual story of real people that this happened to. And these are not the only women. There's, you know, there have since been in the media, other hidden stories um, floating to this, to the top. So, I mean, this is, this is a game changer for a lot of things, because if you got a little kid, you got little girls who don't see themselves other than in videos and, and always, you know, on the other side of things, you know, you get to see some real girl power, 
and see women rise above, you know, some some outrageous circumstances to be at the very best at their field. I think that's, again, why I so love that this movie was about three women and not just about one, because it demonstrated that this, is, this isn't just a fluke, right? It's not just one exceptional person who was able to overcome incredible obstacles to achieve something. We have three exceptional people who are just three of, I and mean, we see a whole room of 30 black women working yeah. at NASA in the like West NASA, I, I forget the name of the facility, but this is not the story of just one person. This right. is a story of lots of people. Yes. And I tell yeah. you, my other favorite thing was when the Octavia Butler character um, says, you know what? I, she goes and she trains the rest of the women to be prepared for the, for the IBM machines coming and taking over what they used to do. And so she had the presence of mind to say, you know what? Let me learn this. Let me learn this, this language so that I can teach these women so that we can be ready when the, when some new stuff comes and everybody can still have a job. Like that is women power right there. And then the white women understood that and said, you know what? Let me bring my, my white girls over here so that they can get some of this training too. And that's when you start to see the intersection, you know, when, when white women and black women started to sort of like, okay, this is some shared destiny right here. You know, I think that's exactly where I'd like to leave off because this this movie is, everyone should see this movie. Everyone has something to learn from this movie, right? This isn't just for a specific right. audience. This is for, I mean, ev- everyone will benefit and be entertained by the story, but also this is one, this is something to be proud of. This is like one of the rare moments in American history where you're like, okay, the good guys yes. can actually win at the end. <laughs> Uh, but with that said, Babs, uh, where can so you you host a daily show coming soon? Yes, Not yet. February first. So where where can people listen to your regular show? Wednesday, we start Wednesday, February first, nine o'clock on one hundred three point five FM WNHH. And are you on tomorrow at ten as well? What's tomorrow? Tomorrow Friday. Yeah. Oh no, I'm not here tomorrow because my daughter Margot is um, trying out for America's Got Talent. Whoa. So I'm going to New York with taking her to New York tomorrow. Well, best of luck to Margo. Well, there we go. <laughs> Babs, you're the best. Thank you for coming on. You're always welcome back. Coming Thank up next you. is Elisa's Culture Cocktail. But first, we'll hear a little bit more music.